Well, good morning. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for hearing Charleston coming by on your way to the beach today. We appreciate that. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from an off-site campus or on the internet or the chapel or the warehouse. We're glad that you guys are along, too. I just want to say this. Uh, here at the Long Point campus, um, we just heard some music that they'll be using in heaven. Um, it's, it's called uh, Bluegrass, and uh, it was pretty awesome. And uh, we're having a benefit concert this afternoon for the school worship at 2.30. Balsam Range is going to be here. If you're in the Charleston area, uh, you may want to be a part of it. Some great stuff for a good, good cause. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, let me ask you a question. Have you ever, um, have you ever had somebody uh, say to you, you can go back to middle school days. This happened to all of us. You, know, you got all these friends together and somebody comes up to you and they say, you know Johnny, right? Yeah, I know Johnny. Johnny's my best friend. Did you know he said, and then fill in the blank, he said something. And it was offensive to you or it was something that was out of character to him and you couldn't believe it. It caused all kind of rifts between the three. It could be kind of like if you're a Gamecock fan, you have a friend it's a Gamecock fan, somebody comes and says that they're cheering for Clemson this year, you go, there's no way. I mean, that's like treason. How could you do that? You know, and you've, you, you've got all of this stuff. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, I repent. But so, so you've got all this going on and you've got, you've got people dividing one side against the other because of something that was said that was out of character. You find out that it was said and you feel, you feel a little cheapened about the relationship. You might feel a little bit angry you say, how could they say something like that? Well, let's suppose that you and I were to go back in time to the first century, and we live in Jerusalem, Judea, the surrounding area, and you have a friend whose name is Matthew, and he comes up to you and he says, you know Jesus, right? And you go, yeah, I know Jesus. I, you know, I, I, I kind of consider myself a, you know, a, a a follower, I, I love his teaching, I love what he stands for. He seems to bring, you know, peace, he brings a good message to everybody and Matthew says, you know, you wouldn't believe what I heard him say. In fact, it was just the other day and I wrote it down. I wrote it down for you and I've got it in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 35. It says, Jesus said, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, your enemies will be right in your own household. Some of you are going, hey, you know, I mean, I experienced that at Easter dinner this past week. I mean, that's true, you know. <laughs> Jesus said, and then, and, and then you got another friend named Luke, and, and he wrote, this, he was at the same place, and here's what he wrote. He said, do you think, he's talking about Jesus, that I have come to bring peace to the earth? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did think that. no. I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me, two against, or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he probably could have gone on and on and on to capture all of the relationships. And you hear that and you go, well, that's not the Jesus I know. I mean, the Jesus I know is he brings peace, you know, and he couldn't have said that. And Matthew and Luke said, yeah, you know, he, he did. He did say that. And so you go, well, I'm going to have to reexamine, you know, uh, uh, every, everything I know about him. Maybe I wonder what else he said 
that I've got wrong. Well, we're in a series that we're calling Outrageous. And we're talking about how you handle some of the outrageous things that Jesus sometimes uh, said that sometimes didn't square with the Jesus that we know. And uh, we, we can do a lot of things when, when we read those things. Hey, how many of you have read a, a scripture, and maybe it was the words of Jesus, you went, oh man, I sure don't understand that. I, you know, that's not the Jesus that, that I, I think I follow, that's not the Jesus that I know. And when you come to something like that, you've got several options. You can let it drive a wedge between you and your faith. You can um, uh, kind of skim those verses. Anybody do that? You come to something you don't understand, skim. I'm going to go to something else. I don't understand it. Or you can ask some questions that will deepen the knowledge and the relationship of the Jesus uh, that you follow. In the case of... uh, uh, what Matthew said, and also the case maybe of friends growing up that do things differently than what you thought that, uh, that, that was in character for them, there may be another answer. Either you didn't know them, either you didn't understand them as well as you thought they did, or you did, or their statement may very well be taken out of context. And so what, what I want to challenge you to do when you find a statement of Jesus that you don't understand or anything else in the Bible that you go, wow, what, you know, what's up with that? Ask a couple of questions. First of all, with Jesus, you ask, what was the context of who he was talking to? Who, who was the audience and why would he have said what he said? And secondly, uh, what's the sum total of you know, his message? What has he said before? Is this consistent with his message you know, all, all the way through? So let's kind of look at those. What I'm going to do is I I want to look at this particular passage. Who was he talking to? What was he saying? Let's see if we can get a grasp on what it was. And then I want to take just a few minutes at the end. I want to apply uh, to each one of us kind of what, the the so what? What, what, Why should I care? How do I handle this? Where do I go from here? So who was he talking to? You know, sometimes you say things differently depending on the audience. Would you agree with that? I mean, you might say the same thing, but you say it differently depending on who you're talking to. For example, uh, I um, am speaking this year. I spoke at the women's conference here at Seacoast in January, and I'm going to be speaking to a a men's gathering here in August. And basically, I'm probably going to take the same truth but I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about it and, and speak in, in different ways. I might say the same, place, uh, same thing at both places, but I'll say it in two different ways. At the women's conference, the truth will be clothed in nice and gentle words, lots of feeling talk, and uh, uh, pictures of my grandkids, and bed, bath, and beyond illustrations. That's the type thing that we did for that, okay? For the men's event, we might bring out a few bowling words, you know, men like that. Lots of sports analogies, references to testosterone, a little more rah-rah, you know, a little plain ch- high challenge, high motivation, because that's kind of what the guys like. So you say, well, who was Jesus talking to when he, when he made the statements that we read just a minute ago? Well, he was talking to his 12 closest disciples. Wasn't talking to a big crowd. He had the, the 12 kind of original guys in, and he's preparing them for a mission trip uh, that they're going to go on. He's letting them know it's not going to be easy. 
They're going to have to toughen up. It's not going to be a walk in the park. There's not any bed, bath, and beyond illustrations. Most of them will ultimately lose their life in the process of being evangelists for him. Uh, we send out a lot of mission uh, trips at Seacoast, and about 40 of them a year. And you know, a lot of them are medical trips, and some of them are to some pretty difficult places. And so we'll gather together the teams and we'll talk about what can you expect. And sometimes we'll give absolute worst case scenarios. You go here, this could happen, you will have to eat this, no it won't be good, you know, or th these types of things could happen because we wanna let you know this is, this is the possibilities. And that's who Jesus is talking to. He's, he's, giving, the, he's giving the kind of worst case scenarios of what may very well happen in their mission. And so, then let's take a look at Jesus' life as a whole. I mean, what else does he say about this division versus peace, what he, what he came to bring? First of all, we know this about his birth. His birth was announced as one of peace. In fact, Isaiah, a few hundred years before Jesus was born, wrote down a prophecy about who he was gonna be. It's found in Isaiah 9 and verse six. I'll read it and you can kind of read along. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and establishing up, holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Almighty will accomplish this. It says that he will come as what? As the prince of peace. And then we know that the angels announced to the shepherds, remember that? In Bethlehem, hey, listen, Jesus is coming and his, here's what he said, glory to God in the highest uh, heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. He says he's bringing peace to the earth. We also know that uh, when he grew up and he became a teacher, he didn't advocate Division. In fact, uh, in one of his first sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, I remember being in Israel and kind of seeing where that happened. It's kind of a natural amphitheater up there. And Jesus is standing down at the bottom. He's got the water behind him that kind of echoes off and he's able to speak to a whole group of people. And, and in his sermon, uh, the very first part that we call the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5 and verse 19, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. He said, you know, you want to recognize who God's kids look like? They're peacemakers. They're not troublemakers. I had a guy who was at a meeting not long ago and a national politician was there and, and uh, when he found out that I pastor Seacoast Church and I think, I don't know, maybe there's, uh, what, what do they call them, a uh, um, a primary vote that happens in South Carolina, I don't know, whatever, but anyway, he became my best friend, or wanted to be my best friend, you know. So, and so he's kind of trying to get on the same page as I am, and he says, you know, I'm a Christian. I said, well, good, awesome. He said, in fact, that's how I learned to fight in Congress. I said, well, explain to me that. He said, well, I was a deacon in a church, and that's where I learned how to fight like I fight. I thought, wonder, what a great illustration, you know what I mean? That's not what Jesus said. I mean, the, the apostle Paul and Jesus don't put a premium on troublemakers. 
hey, get your most divisive people, make them elders and deacons, and let's see how the, work, you know, the church works from there. That's not what he said. He said, blessed are the what? The peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Now, uh, not, not only that, but in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, when Paul is describing the armor of God, just kind of the clothes that we wear as believers, he said, have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of what? Of peace. Of peace. And so Jesus was, was uh, his, his birth was predicted as one of peace. When he taught, he said there's a premium on being a peacemaker and that the gospel would be called the gospel of peace. Not only that, here's, here's something else to think about. When, he's, when he said what he said, he's speaking from personal experience. Now, as a public speaker, the most powerful illustrations that you can have are those that come from your own experience. Occasionally, you know, you read something and you talk about what somebody else said, but you guys relate probably most when I'll say, you know, it's kind of like this, and I'll talk about something that's going on in my life, or Debbie and I, or, or give a grandkid story, and you go, okay, yeah, I get that, I get that. Well, Jesus here is given a personal il- il- illustration. See, this is what's going on. He's living what he's talking about. There's tension and conflict in his family. Some of us think about Jesus and we go, oh man, it would have been wonderful, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the manger and all of this. And they grew up and he was a perfect kid and everybody loved one another. Not so much. I mean, he was a perfect kid. In fact, on Mother's Day, I'm gonna do a message called Stuff Jesus Said to His Mother. And uh, that's interesting. But anyway, so... But there's tension and conflict in his family. In John chapter seven and verse five, it says, for even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Can you imagine that? The Messiah, the guy that's gonna have this worldwide ministry starting in Judea. And what's his family think? Well, they don't, they, they don't really follow him. They don't really get the deal. In fact, um, you read the book of James and many scholars believe that James was written by the brother of Jesus. But at this point, when John wrote the scripture for even his brothers didn't believe, he didn't follow. In fact, we know that James didn't come to know Jesus until after the resurrection. So not only did they not follow him, but they were literally actively opposed to him. Look at the next verse in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, They went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind, okay? Jesus is teaching. Here's a representative from the family. They want to have him involuntarily committed to the psych ward. They not only are not following him, they think he's crazy, okay? So this is what's going on. This is the context. He is living this teaching. So when you read something that you don't understand and sounds out of character, you need to ask Who's being talked to? Consider the whole of the teaching, not just an individual piece. And let me suggest this, in understanding this scripture, is it possible that he's saying this, division would be the effect of his coming, not the purpose of his coming? Let me explain it like this. How many of you work out? Anybody work out? Anybody in here work out? Nobody in this section? Over here a few. Yeah, I don't blame you. I've heard about people dying while they're working out, so I don't work out. (laughs) But those of you who work out, answer this question. Why do you work out? Just think about that. Okay, let let me give you a possible. 
Do you work out because you love pain? Anybody here? Okay, I was hoping not. Okay, all right, so, so let me propose this. In workouts, pain is not the purpose, right? The purpose is to get in shape. The purpose is to do the triathlon. The purpose is, you know, so your clothes will fit. Whatever it happens to be. The purpose is this. The effect of working out is what? Pain. Pain. So is it possible that Jesus is saying, is not saying that division is his purpose, but division is the effect? He's saying that his purpose is to reunite everything under the Father, is to restore things to their original intent, is that everything come under the the lordship of the Father. Ultimate peace. But in accomplishing his purpose, the effect is sometimes division in homes, in families, in workplaces among friends. Some of you have experienced that. Um, I mean, it happens both ways, but let me just, in, in my years of ministry, I've seen it more from female point of view, okay? Maybe you've got two people who are married, and she comes to Christ, and he doesn't. And sometimes, you know, they can coexist okay like that. Not ideal, but it's, it's okay. Sometimes there's a lot of tension that builds up because of that. Sometimes he says, you know, <laughs> this is not what I bargained for. This, this, is, you, this is not the woman that I married. This isn't what I bargained for. And the tensions can become large because Jesus has come into her life and brought division into their home. Is that the purpose? No, that is the effect of what's going on. Or maybe you've seen it with friends. Uh, maybe you, you know, have a group of friends that you used to be real close with. You came to Christ or you decided to be serious about being a Christ follower and it brought tension in the relationship. You don't party the way that you used to. You know what? You think you're better than we are. So you've heard that. You came to Jesus and Jesus brought division into your relationships. Uh, or, or maybe it's a roommate, you know, in college, and uh, one or the other of you are radically following Jesus and the other isn't, and you've got that same, that tension going on where Jesus brought division into your home. That wasn't the purpose, it is the effect of following him. You understand what I'm saying? So with that in mind, here's what I want to do. I want, what I don't believe, I don't believe that Jesus came and put a premium on division. I do believe that the effect of following Christ often brings division in relationships. So what I want to do is I want to take the next few minutes and I want to talk to you a little bit about some practical things that we can do. The so what, what happens when Jesus brings division into your world, what do you do? What do you do? Let me give you three of them. Number one, be gracious, not arrogant. Be gracious, not arrogant. How many of you find arrogance attractive? Anybody here find arrogance attractive? None of us do. I looked up arrogant in the dictionary and it said this, an insulting way of thinking or behaving that comes from believing that you are better, you are smarter, and you are more important than somebody else. When I read those words, some of you got a a picture of a person in your mind. 
Some of these, they just think they're better than you. They think they're smarter than you. They think they're more important than you. There's just an air about them, and you don't like it, and other people don't like it. There's all kinds of arrogance. There's, there's the arrogance of youth. You know, you remember that, don't you? Mark Twain said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so arrogant I could hardly stand being around the old man. And when I got to be 21, I was astonished by how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> the arrogance of youth. It's not just youth, though. Youth don't have a corner of the market. There's the arrogance of age. Have you ever known anybody that looked down on you that thought they were better just because they were older? You know? Uh, just because we've lived longer doesn't mean that you're wiser or smarter. You may have made the same mistakes more often. That's just all you've got on anybody. Older people can be arrogant. But I think, personally, uh, the most disgusting kind of arrogance is the arrogance of faith. The arrogance of faith. When you find the truth and you handle it poorly. I remember I did. When I, as about 18, 19 year old, uh, maybe 20, 19, 20 year old guy who decided, okay, I'm really gonna follow Christ with a passion. It changed everything in me, but my attitude became arrogant toward those who didn't see it the way that I did, even those in my own home. And some of the division that came was not just Jesus bringing the sword, it was my own arrogance bringing the sword. Because when, when religiously, when spiritually, you think that you have a handle on the truth and you handle it poorly, uh, it's just disgusting and, it, and it, uh, it's, not a, it's not a good thing. I, I remember speaking at a conference a few years ago. And uh, in fact, I'm speaking at the same conference this week. A big conference in Florida. And uh, apparently, there was a young guy in the audience that took exception to what I was saying and how I was saying it. Now, back in the day, if you didn't like what somebody was saying, like at church or, you know, in, a, in a, uh, a social gathering or in a conference or whatever, then you just, you know, maybe you got up and you walked out or maybe you told a few friends around you that you didn't like it or whatever. These days, we tweet it so that the world knows. And this guy was live tweeting what I was saying and putting his commentary on, and it wasn't nice. It wasn't just that he disagreed. It was just like really, really I mean, it was arrogant. I didn't know it at the time. And some of my buddies afterwards went, dig this, look at this. Look what this guy's saying about you and got retweeted by a couple of people and all this. And I thought, you know, so I went on Twitter and I found out, you know, who he was and what he was about. And he was a seminary student. And here's what I thought. I thought it must be great to be your age and have all the answers. You arrogant little. And then I thought of, you know, I don't remember what I thought, but it was righteous, I think, at the time. You, know, you arrogant little whitewashed sepulcher or something like that, you know, which displayed my own arrogance at the time. But here was a scary thought. I was thinking about that guy this week. Here's a scary thought. That guy is a marketing campaign for Jesus in the arena that he's in. Last week at the Easter service, um, I talked about the fact that Jesus said, one of the most startling things Jesus said is that, is that you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to, at some point this year, I'm going to really unpack that. But he said, you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, you will become my witnesses, my marketing campaign to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. And so you 
If you're a Christ follower, our Jesus marketing campaign, and I'm thinking, this guy is Jesus marketing campaign to somebody. I wonder if he has unsaved friends because he's gonna come off really, really arrogant and it's not gonna be good. And then I thought, I wonder if this guy's married, and if he is married, what if he had an... What if he had a a, a wife that was not a Christ follower and Jesus had brought division into their home? And I thought, no, he he would be dead. So he's not not that. But see, you, you don't want to be arrogant. We really don't need more arrogant believers. If your faith in Jesus has brought division to your world, whether it's your home, your workplace, wherever it happens to be, be gracious. You know, it may be in the workplace that your boss hold different values than you do. And maybe your boss, when, when you it really became a Christ follower, maybe your boss is asking you to do some things that you normally wouldn't do. How are you going to handle that? Well, you've got to stand up for who you are, but you've got to be gracious. In fact, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. It says let your conversation be gracious with those outside of the faith because people don't respond as much to what you say as how you say it. Would you agree with that? He says gracious words in Proverbs 16 are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter uh, uh, 3 give specific instructions to women who are in a situation like I explained earlier where maybe their husband is not a Christ follower. And he says this. He says, in the same way, wives should yield to your husbands. Then if some, husband, uh, if some husbands do not obey God's teaching, they will be persuaded to believe without anyone saying a word to them. They will be persuaded by the way their wives live. How's that? Be gracious and not arrogant. Let me give you a second one. If you find that Jesus has brought division into your arena, be tolerant, not judgmental. Tolerant, not not judgmental. Tolerance has become a casualty of the culture wars in America these days. I looked up the definition of tolerant. Here it is. The ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular the existence of opinions or behavior that, does not necessar- that you do not necessarily agree with. Um, in, in kind of the culture wars in America, let me just address that just for a minute. Uh, for, for a long time, the left has accused the right of intolerance. And sometimes they've accused the church. People have accused, those outside the church have accused the church of intolerance, and they've probably been right. We have not been real wise at times in, in how we deal with people who don't agree with us, okay? Then a couple of weeks ago, I was reading uh, Source of News, and I read that the creator of the Firefox browser, some of you may use Firefox browser, who had become the CEO of the company, was forced to resign because a radical group found out that he had donated $1,000 to a political cause that mirrored his faith as it related to the definition of marriage. He thought that the definition of marriage was between a man and a woman, big issue these days in America, okay? And he donated quietly to a political campaign. They dug it up, found out that he did, and forced him out. And, uh, and I thought, is, is that where we've come to in America? That you can't communicate. One side or the other, either way, what you believe. And, and sure enough, 
those who hold a different position than him, uh, this week said, that's not right. We can't have, if someone has an opposing view, be labeled as hate speech. We don't understand what tolerance is. When I was thinking about this, because the church is going to deal with these issues more and more and more. And we've got to stand for what we believe. There's this delicate balance of standing for what you believe, not caving on that, but being tolerant of people with a different opinion and position. The church has to take its cues on tolerance, not from the culture, but from the creator. God speaks about this. In Romans chapter two and verse four, he's talking to, um, to religious people. And uh, in Romans chapter one, he talks about the culture that they're living in, and it, it just is uh, it's pretty, pretty wicked in a lot of ways. But then he talks to the church, and he says, who are kind of looking down their nose at people outside of them, and he says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient that God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? He said, what turned you from your sin? Was it God railing at you all the time? God telling you how awful you were? No. He said it was God's kindness, God's tolerance of you. He knew you were wrong. And yet he tolerated your opinion until such a time as you you accepted his kindness. See, when Jesus brings division, when your faith brings separation, be kind, be tolerant, be patient. It doesn't mean that God suspends all the laws of justice, that everything is okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, it all ends up okay in the end. No, I don't believe that. I believe that there is a way, that there is a God. But I also believe that our job is to love and be and, and to be and to be tolerant. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says to the church, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. He said, you know what? In the church, we need to be lovingly caring for one another, lovingly watching each other's life, lovingly watching each other's doctrine. But he said, outside of the church, that's God's job. Now, that's, I'm going to give you some good news because I discovered some good news. In this verse, that means I can resign as general manager of the universe. How many of you know that that's less pressure than what you have right now? It's, and I've got an example for you that's just as fresh as my own life. It's like, I, I read this and I thought, God, that's just like being a grandparent. I love my job. The parent's job is to discipline and to train. My job is to be gentle, loving, and tolerant and bring candy into the situation. <laughs> See? <laughs> if I get those mixed up, then I got a problem. The, the parents are like God in that child's life. I'm the tolerant grandparents. And so, and, and, and in, in our situation, a lot of times we're trying, and you know, it's a delicate balance. We've got to stand up for what we believe. Absolutely, we've got to stand up for what we believe. We've just got to do it with a gracious, not arrogant attitude. And we've got to learn to be tolerant and, and know where our judgment ends. And tolerance means that you may not agree with me. It's okay, I can live with that. 
what we say in this church, even within the church. You don't have to agree with me on everything. You have a right to be wrong, okay? And that's, it's okay, it's okay. But when faith in Jesus brings division, be gracious, not arrogant. Be tolerant, not judgmental. And here's the third thing. Be hopeful, not pessimistic. Be hopeful, not pessimistic. And let me talk to you just a minute. There are some of you that are living this right now. For most of us, you know, it's just kind of a, well, I know somebody that has this kind of division going on. But some of you are living it right now. And you're going, when does this end? Honestly, I'm tired of the pressure. I'm tired of the friction. How long do I have to live this way? How long must I be miserable? Let me tell you something. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. You can not avoid the pain, but you can avoid the joy, and you don't want to do that. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, always be joyful, or be full of joy in the Lord. Again, I say it, rejoice. God never asks us to do something we can't do, and it's not like a Pollyanna, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're in a difficult financial situation, you can find joy in the middle of it. If you're in a difficult physical situation, you can find joy in the middle of it. If you're in the difficult relational situation where your faith in Jesus has brought division into your home, into your roommate, into your business, into wherever it is, you can choose joy. How do you do that? Romans 5, 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. It's not your own thing. It's not finding something inside. It's coming from God who fills you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's learning to live a life full of the Holy Spirit so that you overflow with joy, God's joy, and you overflow with hope. Be hopeful, not pessimistic. Hope says, you know what? The story in my loved one's life isn't over yet. Hope says God is able to do abundantly more than I could ask or imagine. Hope says God is at work in my current circumstances, whether I feel it or not, God is at work. Debbie's mother went to be with Jesus last year. She and her husband lived in the same home for over 50 years. Her husband, my father-in-law, went to be with Jesus about three years ago. And so next month, uh, the kids are selling the family house. And uh, they have to, it's, they can't keep up with it, and they're scattered around. There's one brother, it would be his responsibility. And I gotta be real honest with you, I'm, I'm very sentimental about it. I'm more sentimental about it than the kids are, I think, to some degree. The house means a lot to me. It's not because of the size of the house, because it's a little bitty house. It's just a little postage stamp. I doubt if it's 800 square feet in the upstairs level and they got a little basement carved out of that. It's not because of where it's located because it's, the neighborhood has definitely deteriorated over the years. It's because of what is in that house. My father-in-law was a blue-collar um, airplane mechanic, worked on black boxes and the controls in, in an airplane all his life. He was good with his hands, something that I'm not. Never have been and never will be. He could make anything. And so inside that house, especially in the basement part of it, uh, he handcrafted paneling for the walls. Now, when you think of paneling, you think of going to Lowe's, you know, and getting a sheet of paneling or whatever. It's not what he did. He took individual boards and he carved them out beautifully. 
and the whole downstairs is done with his handiwork. The furniture he made, and it's immaculate. The things on the wall, the, the trinkets and all of that are just, are, are beautiful, and it's, and it's a part of him, and, and he, he, he made them. Uh, one time, uh, just a few years ago, I took Joshua and Jason to see him, because I knew he wouldn't be around for a long time, and I wanted them, although they'd known their grandfather a little bit, I wanted them to really, really know him, so we went and we spent a day with him, just us guys. And he took us into his woodworking shop in the, in the backyard, and he showed us the lathe. You know, the lathe is, is this thing you put a board kind of like this on the lathe, and they apply friction and pressure to it, and ultimately they carve it out. He could, carve, he could make all kinds of things with it. He showed us, you know, his other tools, his, his planer. I think this is a planer. Somebody told me that it was. Uh, it has a little blade in there. And, and what, what, what he would do is, is he would apply pressure to this and he would make something beautiful out of it. See, I asked, what does it take to turn a piece of lumber into a work of art? It takes vision. Somebody was telling me last night that one of their friends or family members was a carver and he said, how do you make something beautiful out of this? And he said, you just cut away everything that doesn't look like a duck, you know? <laughs> Vision. It takes the right tools and it takes the right amount of friction in order to carve it away. Well, can I tell you this? The master craftsman has a vision for your life. He knows the life that he wants for you. Jesus said, I've come that you might have it more abundantly. He has the tools of his word, of the Holy Spirit, but he also uses circumstances and the people that he brings in to your life. And he applies just the right amount of friction and the end result is a work of art. According to Ephesians Chapter two and verse 10, it's a masterpiece. He said, for we, you, are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. So let me just speak to the few among us here. Probably in a crowd this large as we'll hear this today, there'll be a few hundred of us who are in a situation right now where our following Jesus has brought friction and division into our home. Don't give up. Don't give in. Instead, look up because God is at work in you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Can we do that? Here at this campus and in campuses, wherever you happen to be or even on the internet, I wanna, before I pray for everybody, I just really would like to pray for those specifically on whom this message has landed. I knew as I prepared this message that we could all learn some, but there would be some that would be very vitally affected. And, and it, would you just indicate to me, maybe just by looking up, if, if there's division in your arena because of Jesus, would you just look up at me right now? You say, I, okay, all right, okay. All over this congregation, okay. Just look up at me. There's division in your home. There's division at the workplace. There's division 
roommates or division on your team, whatever it happens to be, okay. All right, this message was for you. The reason you're here today is God loves you enough and he wanted you to sit down and just listen for he can say, I love you. And I want the best for you. I want to pray for you, okay? I want to pray for you. God, I thank you uh, today for your kingdom. I thank you for your care and your love for us. I thank you for your word and the power of your word. God, now I pray that you would apply it to our lives. There are some of us that um, we're, we're bending under the pain. We're, we're tired of the friction. And God, we're gonna re-up now and understand that you are indeed using all of this to create the beautiful thing that you desire for us and for our family and for our community and for the world. God, we recognize that pain is a byproduct of your ultimate peace. And so God, I pray that you would sustain us. God, I pray that for each one who's looked up and maybe others who haven't, that you would guide our mouths to be gracious. Lord, that you would guide us to be tolerant. Lord, that you would guide us to be patient and hopeful and not get into pessimistic wonderings, but to trust you. And God, I pray for the object of our, of our discord. God, I pray that you would cause that other one, to come to know you through maybe even the example in the life that we live. But we're gonna trust you with that. And we're gonna live in hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.